Amen. You may be seated. It is a joy to be here with you today. You know, July marks a special time for me. Um, it will be 13 years uh, at the end of this month that I've been preaching and teaching um, in some capacity. My first sermon um, back in Mississippi, I preached to about 120 people, and it was a very full service. Uh, the next week, I preached to 10. And um, so I'm very thankful to not see that trend continue um, here. Now, in defense, it was a small country church, and I was sent on assignment. But um, it's a joy to be here with you today. I'm very glad to get to share God's Word with you. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8. Today we will be looking at another of the I Am statements. We are doing a series this summer where we're walking through the book of John. And we're focused on seven or eight, if you remember I mentioned last week, statements that Jesus says, I am, and then follows up with some sort of teaching. And we're doing this because we're very interested in answering the question, who is Jesus? And we think that the best place to go for an answer to that is Jesus himself. Now, um, this week is actually the disputed eighth I am statement, which may seem odd two weeks into a summer series to get here, but this is where it follows in the text. And I'll let you know on the outset, I absolutely think that this should be included in the list of I am statements. And to state it even more um, positively, I think it is necessary in the I am statements for what we see today in Before Abraham Was, I Am gives us truth and understanding that will help us better hear and understand and um, listen to the other statements as well. Before we go much further, though, I do want to go to the Lord and ask for His help and understanding today. So would you pray with me now? Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to come before Your Word we thank you for the opportunity to read it together, to hear it explained and taught. Give us open ears and open hearts and open minds that we may receive your word. Use it to transform our lives, to deepen us in our love of you, to grow us in our understanding of who you are, or maybe bring us to that breaking point where we realize we can't do it on our own lest you help us. We ask for the strength to do this now. I pray for boldness on my behalf that I may preach your word and your text and your message. Keep me out of the way and allow you to flow through me. And I ask this in your name, for your glory, and only by your power. Amen. I'll be reading the word of the Lord in John's Gospel, chapter 8. I'll actually start in verse 31, although the main text is printed in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and had nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you're not of God. Then the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews answered him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This ends the reading of God's word. May he glorify and magnify himself through it, and may he place these truths upon all of our hearts. Today we find ourselves in a similar situation as we found ourselves in last week. Jesus is having a conversation with a group of Jewish people. They are misunderstanding and disagreeing with them at certain points. This leads them to make pretty bold accusations to Jesus and about some of the things that he's saying. Jesus, in turn, makes some bold statements himself about what's going on. We are going to look closely at that discussion and that back and forth, and we're going to try to decipher why both sides make the claims that they make and find if there's any truth in them. One of the things that we need to see in order to do that is this statement that Jesus makes here, before Abraham was, I am, is not an ordinary statement. 
In fact, it doesn't fit with the other seven I am statements. And it really implies something truly extraordinary that I don't want you to miss. They all follow this similar pattern. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. It's Jesus declaring He is, and then He says what He is. Now, that's not the only thing going on in those statements, but there is some truth in that. Here we have it at the end, in which if you look at that from a grammatical standpoint, you would say, this, this really is an odd sentence structure, isn't it? This is kind of an odd way to make a statement. Well, if that bothers you, hold on, because it gets worse. And the only way that we can understand that is we need to look at the original text. We need to take a moment and put on our translation um, goggles and see what's happening in the original languages. But before we do that, I I do need to make a caveat in case my Hebrew professor, Miles, is listening. I'm sorry for what I'm about to do. Um, You see, Miles taught us the original languages, our Hebrew, our Greek, and he offered Aramaic. And um, he taught us to to take God's Word and take it out of the original and and to translate it like the translators of our Bibles did today. And he had this, this statement that he would make year after year after year. And he was very adamant about this, and he would tell us young scholars, never let the people see your exegetical underwear. And... We thought it was a hilarious statement, and and we often got a lot of laughs out of it. And then he told us what it meant. He said, translation of the Bible, learning the original languages, learning how to read the original text, it's, it's a lot like underwear. It should always be present but never be seen. And there's a lot of point to that. There's a lot that can happen when you go into the weeds, if you will. If you dig down too deep in the text, you miss what's happening because you're so focused on the ground in front of you. But I do think on this one instance, uh, Miles would agree with me, um, deep study is needed. And we need to look at, at least for a moment, the original text. You see, Jesus isn't really saying here... Before Abraham was, I am. In fact, if you look at the original language, he is combining two phrases. One phrase is the the Greek word ego, which uh, can be translated I am. And the other phrase that he uses is a Greek word called ami, which can be translated I am. And so, if you are looking at it in the original language, it reads, before Abraham was, I am, I am. And you actually see this in all of the other I am statements as well. Last week, he really said, I am, I am the bread. And this is, this is odd. Was Jesus stuttering? Did he make a mistake? Did the, the grammarians um, or the, the monks, did they write it down incorrectly? R.C. Sproul says no. He is not misspeaking. Instead, he's being very intentional with his word choice here. In fact, the only other place in the Bible that we see this structure, and it can be found in one other place, is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This was done for uh, those Greek scholars who couldn't read um, the Hebrew. And if you go to the Septuagint, you go to a Uh, Exodus chapter 3, and you hear these words translated for us in the ESV. Moses said to God, 
if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers have sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Ego me. And he said, Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see, Jesus is reminding the people of this Old Testament story. He is calling them to this text by saying, Ego, a me, I am that which I am. And that is going to have direct application to what we're going to be studying today. So let's zoom back into our story and look at what's going on. And to get the full gist of the argument, we need to to go back just a few verses to verse 31. And in verses 31 to 38, we begin by seeing true disciples abide in God's Word. Jesus begins here... And don't miss this by addressing people who profess belief in him. They profess faith. And he was wanting to help them. He was wanting to encourage them. If you believe in me, if you trust in me, you need to know what that looks like. What does it mean to be my disciple? And Jesus was telling them to be my disciple means to obey my commands, to obey my teaching, to listen to what I'm telling you. This is sort of a a litmus test, if you will. If you are listening and obeying, if your life looks like that of the Scriptures and it looks more and more like what God laid out, then you're on track. You're following God's Word and you are looking good to be a disciple of Christ. However, if you hear God's Word and you turn away from it or you come to it and then disagree with it or want to argue against it or um, turn your back on it, that's not what Jesus is saying. He says discipleship is obedience. Now, I do want to say here as a bit of a caveat, we are sinners and we do sin. I'm not saying that if you sin, you're not a disciple of Christ. Far be it from the truth. But what I am saying here is when we sin, we ought to come back again and again and again to Christ. We've got to come back to God. We've got to come back and repent. And that should be the pattern, not sin and then turn around and walk away. And that's very important for us. And, you know, for the Jewish people, this doesn't bother them. The fact that Jesus says to be my disciple means to obey, he's, they, they're fine with that. They uh, almost expect that. They almost expect um, discipleship to look like obedience because that's what God told them in the Old Testament. What gets them confused, though, and what really sets off our argument for today is what Jesus says in verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you remember from last week, the Jewish people, as they converse with Jesus, they have a a problem where they always take it literally, at, at face value. They, uh, last week, were told that, that Jesus had the bread of life. 
And they say, sir, give us this bread always so we don't have to get any more. And this week he says, you must be free. You must be free from your sinfulness. He says in verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But the Jewish people, they, they take this literally and they, they kind of get defensive. Wait a minute, Jesus, I've never been enslaved to anyone. I have no master. I'm a child of Abraham. Jesus, though, isn't meaning physical enslavement. He's not meaning physical captivity. He's meaning spiritual captivity. And this may seem like a surprise to you. It, it may not. But there's a lot of people today that, that respond the same way to Jesus. Um, they think that the world is relatively good. They deny the concept of captivity or bondage of the sinfulness of man. You know, in today's time, humanism is one of the biggest um, belief systems. And humanism is one that elevates man to the point that there's really no need for God. And, and humanism says that man is good and man wants to do good. And man, more often than not, will do good. But here's the problem. The Bible says otherwise. Romans chapter 3 um, in verse 10 and following says, that is, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one and later on in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. After that, there is no one who can stand up to Paul and say, well, I'm excluded from that list. Paul makes it absolutely clear across the board, no matter who you are, you have turned from God, you have wanted your own, you have sought sinfulness, and you've done so gladly. Man's heart is inclined toward its own desires, and naturally those are evil. We don't like being told this. It may sting a little. This may get us a little bristled up. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He um, goes even further. Because he says you need to be free from your sin and when they disagree with that, he says, well, and this is where your sin comes from. Your sin comes from your father. In verses 39 to 47, we're going to see that we will follow, we will obey, we will serve, we will look like our father. The Jewish people, they want to get back on safe ground. Jesus is kind of rocking the boat with his argumentation here. So they go and, and pick a safe spot. Well, Jesus, actually, we're children of Abraham. And I can imagine they kind of take a step back and they fold their arms and they think, well, what's he going to say to that? I mean, he can't, he can't question Abraham. I mean, Abraham is solid, Old Testament figure, um, the father of us as a people. They held on to their genealogy with all they could, knowing that this was the thing that would get Jesus to back off. Have you ever seen someone do this today, though? It's not a um, concept that's been lost in our culture. 
I've often talked to someone and I'll ask, you know, what do you do? And I'll begin a conversation and then before long it, it always ends up, what do you do? Well, I serve at a church as a youth teacher and a Bible teacher at a school. Oh, well, I'm a Christian. Well, that's great. That's not what I asked, but I didn't actually, I didn't ask anything. And they want to make sure, you know, that's got to get in there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I go to church all the time. Uh, my parents went to church. Um, we especially go on, on Easter and Christmas because you've got to get those in there. And, you know, we tithe once a month or every other month or sometimes. And, you know, they, they want to start giving you reasons. And they want you to have those reasons so that you know that they're Christians. But they're doing the same thing that the Jews were doing. They're banking their relationship with God upon attendance or genealogy. Maybe it's my parents have always gone. My grandparents have gone. Maybe it's performance. Maybe, you know, it is my regular tithing or my work at the church work days. And sadly, where I see this the most is in our teenage culture um, a study back in 2009, and, and these are hard statistics, but this is important. 90% of students who identified as Christians in high school drop out by the end of their freshman year in college. Did you get that? 90% of all students in California in 2009 who professed faith or declared to be Christian left after one year of college. Now, we may write that off. Well, that's California, and they should be their own country anyway. Um, you know, and I know what you're thinking. You're, well, that's over there. That's not over here. 2011, another statistic across the U.S., 65% of all high school students leave the church by their freshman year in college. Slightly less, but that's over half. Why? Why? Because for the most part and most of the time, those students were attending because that's where I always go. My parents go there. My grandparents go there. They tie their relationship, and I would be very interested to talk to those who claimed Christianity in these surveys to find out what does that mean to them. You would find that it doesn't mean a whole lot. It doesn't really mean I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I love God. It probably means I attend church, and I listen to sermons, and I try to be good. You will reflect your Father. You will act like your Father. Jesus tells the Jewish people here the reason they act the way they do is because their Father does. You know, if my Father were here, you would quickly pick Him out of the crowd it wouldn't take long for his, him to start talking and y'all would hear him. Um, my southern is kind of mellowing out, but his is very strong, uh, living his entire life in Mississippi. We have the same stance. We shift our weight when we talk to people. It's almost, we don't even realize it anymore. We have the same um, dark hair, the same facial features, um, the same mannerisms. When we talk to someone, we talk with our hands on our side or with our arms crossed. We have the same nervous laugh when we respond to something, when you're telling us something and we don't really know what to say. We'll kind of go, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it's, it comes out second nature. I, I don't even think about it in, unless I'm writing it on paper. 
He and I share the same um, way of doing things. We have the same style of work ethic. In fact, mine came from my father, both positively and negatively. He taught me to work very hard, whether you knew what you were doing or not, whether you were good at it or not, and work at it until it's done. And if you can't figure it out, make it work. And people often come along behind us and go, why? Just come ask someone for help. Uh, There's no way a a logical person would make this conclusion. But that's my father, and that's me. And I am who I am because of him. He is that way, and therefore I am that way. And this is how life works. We become like those who raise us. And teenagers, I'm sorry, you will become your parents. Um, It's true. Believe me, it will happen. Jesus is saying the exact same thing here on a spiritual level. He is saying that he acts like, sounds like, listens to, and obeys his Father. He does his will. In the garden on Jesus' last night, listen to what he said. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Jewish people here, they're claiming to be children of Abraham. They're standing on a firm, but we're children of Abraham, God's people. We're safe from your arguments and your reasons. But Jesus is saying, you look nothing like him. You act nothing like him. You don't do what he does. You don't obey like he obeys. And he kind of pushes them back into their corner again. And and so they regroup. Okay, this Abraham thing is not going to fly with Jesus. What, where can we go from here? And they make a pretty bold assertion. How dare you say we have more than one father? We only have one father, Abraham, even God himself. They go above Abraham straight to God. They claim that he is their father. Jesus just repeats what he just said. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. He's saying God loved him. And so if they loved God, they would love Jesus too. He then tells them, this is why you don't love me. This is why you don't obey me. This is why you don't listen to me. God's not your father. Abraham's not your father. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And then he goes on to accuse them that you seek to kill me. You seek here to attack. You are on the offensive. You're not here to learn what I have to say. You're not here to believe me. You're not here to grow in truth. You're here to fight and to argue He's alluding to his eventual death, isn't he? It would be the Jewish people who would lie and have him killed. They couldn't find anything wrong with him, for he committed no sin. His logic is sound. Jesus' reasoning is sure. He's really saying that they look nothing from a spiritual standpoint like Abraham or like God. Instead, they look just like Satan. 
They have the same desires as Satan. They act in the same way as Satan. They go about the same way as Satan. They want to do the things that Satan does. Spiritually, we're all born sinners. Remember, no one is righteous. No, not none. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We naturally want to do the things of our Father, who is the devil. If you remember from last week, Jesus tells us that we only come to the Father when He first comes to us. We don't want God of our own nature. My son exemplifies this. He's a very happy baby, and a lot of you have received a lot of joy from him, and you love holding him, and you, he loves you and loves being around you. But when he's sick, when he's hurting, when he's sad, when he's hungry, he doesn't want you. And that's no, nothing against any of you. You all are wonderful people. He wants his parents. Why? Because for the last 14 months, we've went home with them after you've kept him happy all day for that last hour and a half. And we've put him to sleep, and we've fed him, and we've taken care of him, and we've watched over him. He knows his parents will ultimately take care of him, and he suspects that you will as well, um, because he's just that kind of guy. But... It's not until God opens our eyes, calls us to himself, brings us into the family, adopts us as his children, that we look at him the same way. It's not until God says, you are my children, that we go, wow, I didn't know how much I needed this, and how trustworthy you can be, and how good you can be, and how much you have to give, and how much truth there is into your word. Just like the Jewish people, we would rather seek ourselves. But there's really two options at this point. We can receive this, we can trust it, we can amen it, and then live that way. Or we can continue down the path that the Jewish people did. We can either receive God's word and trust God's word, or we can say, no, this can't be right you must be lying, or worse, I will not believe you. Look at verses 48 to 52 and see how they respond, and they respond with accusation and doubt. They begin by saying, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, cultural context again, there's a few things in this world that Jewish people absolutely despised. Demonic possession, Samaritans, the depths of the ocean, blasphemy. It's a very short list. They just put two of them into a sentence. Jesus, you've got to be a Samaritan because you're not acting like a Jew. And you've got to have a demon because there's no way you could make the statements that you make unless you really didn't believe what we believed or you were demon-possessed. So they really lay it to him here. This is a pretty bold statement that they're making. This is a, don't miss this from our context. This is a, a loud cry against Jesus. How dare you, Jesus, if you will. But 
they can't attack his message. And this is why they do this. You know, um, a logical fallacy known as ad hominem is when you can't attack the message, you attack the messenger. It doesn't follow the rules of debate, but it's very effective. You break the person down and everything they've said crumbles with it. It's used a lot today in arguments and even, very sadly, it's used in politics a lot of time. Um, Because what people are saying, and especially here, what Jesus is saying is true. They can't debate that. They can't argue that. They can't deny that. So, well, let's just bring Jesus down, and then we won't have to worry about what he said. Jesus, very calmly and very simply, says, you're wrong. He reminds them, if you kept my word, you would believe it. If you were my disciple, you would listen. And even more so, you wouldn't even face death. Those who trust in me will never face death. He's making a spiritual application that they are so worked up by this point, they clearly miss this one. In their minds, this validates that he has a demon. Never face death. Who is he making these statements? Abraham, one of God's chosen people, he followed God and he died. And the prophets, they followed God and they died. And Jesus is claiming that listening to him will allow you to live forever. He can't be speaking truth. He's crazy. He's got a demon. Something's not right. And so they finally get so mad and get so worked up, they bring us to the heart of our text. They finally get to the point that they ask the question that they should have asked from the beginning. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In verses 53 to 59, we have his answer. Before Abraham was, I am. And if you haven't picked up on it by now, Jesus has a very particular way of dealing with people and answering their questions. He had really probably about three responses. It was, I'm not going to answer that. Or it was, I'm going to answer that in a short, concise, direct way. Um, When he's accused by Pilate of being God, he said, you have said it is so. Or he answers the question that they're really asking. You know, today, um, this happens to us a lot. Someone will send you a message or see you and, hey, how's it going? How's your day? How are things? When you, you know about four questions or four lines later, it's going to go, what are you doing next Saturday? I need some help with something. But we can't start there. You know, we have to back up and get all the pleasantries out of the way. And so how are you doing? How's life? How's it going? Are you very busy? How's your work schedule? Oh, you're not that busy. Hmm. Well, what do you think about next Saturday coming in and helping me with this project? A lot of times people are doing that to Jesus too. They are asking, are you greater than Abraham? But what they're really asking is, is where do you get your authority to make these statements, Jesus? Where do you get your power? Where do you come across being able to tell us what you're saying? How can you say what you're saying, Jesus? And Jesus decides to answer that question. He ignores um, what they're saying pretty much. And he says, I seek, well, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. This is picking back up on that argument of of fatherhood. Jesus knows his Father and his Father's will. He does it without failure, without question, without delay. He is the only one who can perfectly obey the will of God. And here is where the real problem lies. Because if Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, then that makes him God. Abraham looked forward to the coming of a Messiah. Abraham knew that God would eventually provide a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He saw a glimpse of this in the offering up of his son on the mountain. D.A. Carson says in his commentary that Abraham saw God would provide a sacrifice just as he provided a sacrifice for him there instead of his son. He provided a goat with which he was able to replace Isaac. But when God brought mankind to sacrifice, he used his son. Abraham believed in God, and while he did not know the full plan, he trusted in God and knew that one day it would be revealed. The Jews keep claiming to be of the line of Abraham. They keep claiming to be of God, and yet they don't have Abraham's faith. They don't have Abraham's hope. They don't long to see the day that that sacrifice will come and will be made. Jesus says, Abraham was glad to see my day, and he may not have seen it fully, but he did see enough of it to know that God had a plan, and he trusted in me. And Jews, the Jewish people are are furious at this point. He has said bad things about us. He has said bad things about Abraham. He has said bad things about God. And so they say, you've seen Abraham. You don't know Abraham. You're not even 50. They know he is a liar. He's called them children of the devil. He's claimed to be the son of God. He's claimed to have seen Abraham. He's got to be crazy. None of this is true. Jesus, in, in true fashion, sends them over the edge by simply saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, put yourself in a Jewish person's perspective for a moment. Let's go back. Exodus chapter 3. God speaks out of a burning bush and tells Moses, I am who I am. You tell the people, I am is my name. And I am has sent you to deliver you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And I am is the one who will give you a pillar of fire and smoke while you're in the wilderness. I am is the one who will provide quail and manna from heaven. I am is the one who will bring you to a promised land. That is my name. Let's zoom forward to present. What were those Jewish people realizing that Jesus was saying? What were they seeing as they watched this argument unfold? When Jesus made that statement, he was claiming to be God. And not just any God, the God of the Old Testament. The God who was with Moses the God who was present at the burning bush, the God who wrote the Ten Commandments with His own hand, the God who delivered His people again and again and again. 
Jesus was claiming to be that God. In Jewish law, that's blasphemy of the highest degree. Its sentence is immediate death. You disobey God. You talk bad about God. You break the first two commandments. You break the first three commandments. You deserve death and death is to be served. And that's why they pick up the stones. They're done. They're done arguing. He has finally done something in their eyes that deserves punishment, capital punishment. And it's to be sentenced by death. But Jesus leaves. And the reality that they couldn't see is Jesus is that God. The God that he claimed to be is the God that he is. The entire Old Testament is building up to this point. He is declaring that in, even in the Old Testament, those that believed in me believed by faith that I was coming This leads to everlasting life. Hebrews chapter 11 is filled full of people who said they believed by faith, by faith, by faith in God. I don't know how you read the Old Testament and don't come to the conclusion that this is the God that they've been expecting. I don't know how you listen for two years to Isaiah and not see that the suffering servant is Christ. I don't know how you read Esther, the only book in the Bible that God has not directly mentioned, and not come out of it saying that God's will is superimposed on all things and that God has a plan, and it is a good plan. I don't know how you read of Daniel. I don't know how you read of the prophets. I don't know how you listen to someone have you marry a prostitute and name your children not my people and then see that story unfold. How do you read that and not come to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament is right here in front of you? The Jews couldn't. They could not see it. They would not see it. They would not respond because they were claiming on to old things. They were claiming on to their genealogies. They were claiming on to their background. They didn't have faith. Now, what do we do about this? How do we respond? How do we leave here this morning? Do we rejoice? Do we celebrate Jesus is here? He is that God. He has been foretold for over half of the Bible. And then the rest of it points back to this. Do you take rest in that, dear Christians? Do you listen to this and go, Amen. Praise the Lord. Or do you doubt Do you, like the Jews, question how dare he make those claims? How dare he make those statements? He cannot be those things. I'll offer a challenge for you. 66 books. In mine, it's about 1,050 pages. At the reading pace that most of you have, you could read it in about three weeks. We read enough garbage as it is. We're checking Facebook over 20 times a day. We're reading newspaper ads and we're reading articles and we're reading fiction that's not going to last very long and not have much value. Three weeks, 1,050 pages, about an hour, hour and a half a day, you'll get through it. Read this and then 
I dare you to come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't the God that this talks about. From beginning to end, the whole story, read the whole thing. I challenge you to do that. Or, if, if you want to, be like the Jewish people. All they had was the Old Testament. Read the verse 37, and then come to me and say, Jesus isn't the God that, that they talked about. Because what I think you're going to find is what these Jews did not see. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. That was a declaration. I am God. And what came along with that is, I am to be trusted I am truth, I am good, I take you out of slavery, I take you out of bondage, I adopt you into my family, I give you my name, I give you a home, I give you a future, and it is good. Receive that by faith. Don't be like the Jews in doubt. Don't hear this and turn and walk away as if it's never happened. Trust in the Lord and be ye saved. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is a lot of weight to reading your word. There are high stakes at hearing these truths, at seeing our sinfulness, at realizing that you are the only way to eternal life. But yet at the same time, boy, is there joy and happiness and celebration in hearing that you are a good God and you didn't leave us where you found us. And yes, we are sinners and we do want to follow our father, the devil. But your children, you call out of that and you bring us home. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would either comfort us with your word, that you would call us to obedience to your word, or that you would convict us hard, that you would hang that millstone above our heads and that your word would serve as a weight that we see looming over us. For we have to deal with it. We cannot ignore it. We cannot walk away from it. It is ever present. Our sinfulness, the humanists are not right. We aren't good. We aren't neutral. We are evil. Thank you, Lord, for John's gospel, chapter 8. Thank you that you are the eternal God and that with that comes hope and truth and life if we but simply have faith in the Son and obey His word. Be with us now. Bless this day and the rest of this time you've given us together in your name. Amen.